Now, you can get the greatest classic radio shows of all time at Podcast One. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. Dragnet. Download new episodes of Classic Radio Theater every Monday on the Podcast One app, or subscribe now at iTunes or PodcastOne.com. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. I'm Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast. And I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, Mark Duplass. In the fascinating new documentary, author, The J.T. Leroy Story, filmmaker Jeff Feuerzig presents us with the facts of a decade-old scandal that hit both the publishing and media worlds, featuring a fake writer and was played out for about seven years, duping and fooling an astonishing array of celebrities who bought into the hoax because it conformed to an ideological, sentimental narrative that people wanted to believe in so badly that they elevated this fake writer to cultural hero status. But the problem was that J.T. Leroy, the homeless, HIV-positive, drug addict, male transgender, prostitute, teenage writer who serviced truck drivers and had been the victim of intense childhood sexual abuse, wasn't real didn't exist, was a fake, an impersonator, a collection of ideas that was created from the pain of Laura Albert, who was a depressed, overweight, 40-something San Francisco former phone sex operator and now both mother and frustrated writer. She created this character and found herself writing in his voice about her own painful feelings of alienation. And through sheer will, and without having any entree into the literary publishing world, she started faxing her stories to writers she admired, Dennis Cooper among them, and who passed them on to the agent, Ira Silverberg. And as the stories began to get published in various journals, and JT was becoming a thing, Albert started to have lengthy phone conversations with famous writers who were interested in JT Leroy, and she would speak to them in the voice of the teenage JT complete with a whispery Southern accent. It could have been a boy. It could have been a girl. JT was transgendering. Who knew? Who cared? What everyone did care about was JT's supposed victimization, usually at the hands of his mother's boyfriends. And it is an absurd catalog of horrors that was being sold as the real-life bio of this up-and-coming young fiction writer who had yet to be seen in public because, of course, he wasn't real. As J.T. Leroy, Albert published two books in 1999, Sarah, a novel, and the short story collection, The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. And though these books were both thin and overwritten, 
and felt to some of us as completely inauthentic, the sentimental narrative of J.T. Leroy struck a nerve among the media world, hungry for a character like J.T. Leroy, who seemed to represent a voice that was missing in the culture, an affirmation that this voice in fact existed, and an enormous amount of people who should have known better were completely duped. And though the list of fawning, adoring celebrities and writers who completely bought into the hoax and aided in J.T. Leroy's fame is too long to list here, they include Gus Van Sant, who wanted to make a movie out of Sarah, as well as Bono, Courtney Love, Winona Ryder, Tom Waits, Matthew Modine, Shirley Manson, Debbie Harry, Mary Carr, as well as Asia Argento, who actually wrote and directed a large-scale independent movie from The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things and had a sexual fling with the person who was impersonating JT, believing that JT actually existed until the bitter end. And in the documentary author the JT Leroy story, Fuerzig has not only unlimited access to those early private phone calls from a wide array of celebrities that Albert recorded throughout the 1990s in JT's breathy, whispering, southern twanged voice, a voice so obviously fake to some of us, that we found the put-on of it all as it was happening and being swallowed by the public to be almost admiringly daring, as well as a vast trove of archival footage of the actual JT interacting with these celebrities who had only previously known him as a voice on the phone. Laura Albert got away with hiding JT as a recluse from the press for only a while before she had to produce the author in person. A German book tour was coming up, And even though the packed readings of JT's work were massive affairs with celebrities taking turns and reading chapters from his work because Albert called the celebrities up as JT requesting this. And uh, full disclosure, I was asked once or twice and politely turned the request down. There was growing suspicion about the validity of this writer who was supposedly hiding from the limelight. And so Albert ultimately used her long-term boyfriend's younger sister, Savannah, who had somewhat androgynous features, to play JT, constantly wearing a platinum blonde wig and oversized sunglasses and being schooled by Albert on what to say and what not to say, and then finally pushing this impersonator onto the public stage in around 2000, 2001. And there is amazing footage in the film of JT everywhere, from backstage at a U2 concert in deep conversation with Bono, to JT on the red carpet at Cannes for the premiere of the Argento movie, to a massive reading in an Italian stadium with Laura Albert playing the role of JT's British manager, Speedy, always worriedly lurking in the background, issuing stage directions, keeping the ruse in play. This was, in retrospect, an incredibly elaborate and somewhat amazing hoax, more essential and creative than the books JT supposedly wrote, and one of the great literary art projects of the last 20 years. Author, the JT Leroy story, is a deliriously fast-paced ride through late 90s, early 80s culture, with everyone from Smashing Pumpkins' Billy Corrigan, who ended up having an affair with Albert, to dreamboat actor Michael Pitt, who ended up making out with JT, or Savannah Noop as JT, everyone played some kind of role in the madness of it all. In this moment, the culture was becoming invested in not only a gay hero, but also a gay hero who was an abuse survivor and HIV positive and trans. This is a victim who has been marginalized, his defenders cried out. JT's voice needs to be heard. 
And the media and the well-meaning celebrities needed to give this hoax artistic and emotional support for JT. And there is the inevitable hint for themselves as well, as ambassadors of do-goodism and PC thinking. This ideological reaction that seemed so misplaced to some of us, with this particular avatar representing whatever they felt needed to be represented, raced throughout the culture, ensnaring and tripping up a lot of people. Gus Van Sant, who gave JT an associate producer credit on his film Elephant that he made during his friendship with JT, as well as working with JT on the development of Sarah, which never got made, as well as various photo shoots, and Ozzie Argento get duped the worst. And it is painful to witness their confused and stunned reactions when the movie goes into its breathlessly dramatic and exciting final act, where the New York Times, who had also effusively praised JT Leroy in the preceding years, begins to unravel the hoax. And though the movie doesn't go into this, many of us had assumed this was a con all along. And since we didn't take it too seriously, we thought the outcome was amusing. And it was kind of delightful to see the earnestness and self-importance of celebrity culture get taken down a couple of notches because J.T. Leroy and his books always seemed fake to some of us. I remember being one of those celebrity authors who Albert, as J.T., had an extensive phone call with one afternoon in the late 1990s. I was in my apartment, pacing around, smirking and rolling my eyes while playing along with the game, amused that someone was going to such lengths to dupe me, and mildly curious to see where this was all going to go. Nowhere, as it turned out, just a rambling and aimless conversation. I also found myself one spring in the early 80s at a small dinner before the Los Angeles premiere of The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. And I say premiere because I believe this screening occurred a couple of years before the movie was actually released in the States. At the um, restaurant Campanile on La Brea with the film's producers, as well as Aja Argento and J.T. Leroy, who was being played that night, as he always was, by Savannah Noop. And Laura Albert was again there as Speedy, J.T.'s British manager. And again, I was completely amused by the obviousness of this hoax and really admired whoever it was pulling this thing off. No one had confirmed that it was actually Speedy, a.k.a. Laura Albert, who was the real J.T., and yet, how it seemed everyone else at the table, uh, there were about 12 of us in total, had taken the thing seriously. When it all came crashing down a year or two later, and Laura Albert was revealed to be J.T. Leroy, and that J.T., the homeless, HIV-positive, drug-addict, male, transgender, teenage prostitute writer who was forced to serve as truck drivers in order to make a living, was not real, the rage from the media and celebrities was swift and furious. The celebrities who had so bought into the ideology that they completely forgot or ignored the measly, barely there aesthetic of J.T. Leroy and were instead reveling with him in his victimization. There's a breathtaking moment in the doc early on where we see Winona Ryder basking in the limelight as she introduces J.T. at one of those fake celebrity readings and seems so lost in her do-gooder narcissism that you think, is this when she was doing heroin with Dave Perner? The movie has its problems, it's way too cute at times, and its visual jokey curly cues are distracting, but the level of deception and delusion and the sweeping massive drama of it all, as well as a fast-paced flashback to an era that seems like an ancient world, is irresistible. Laura Albert may have victimized herself to justify her great creative endeavor, which is the hoax itself, 
But I think it's forgivable because Laura, like all writers, was a fabulist. And JT was an awesome creation because everyone bought into it. The hoax was the key accomplishment in her career and not the prose. The hoax was brilliant in a way the written work never was. In that respect, Laura Albert is a rock star. And by the time the film ends, I couldn't help admiring what she had pulled off and yet be stunned that so many people were so furious because they, what, bought into the fiction of it? Hey, just as you do when you read a novel. And after the real story came forward, it left them humiliated and furious at the ridiculousness of their own vanity. The quote-unquote victims of the hoax should have been choking with laughter and giving Laura Albert a standing ovation rather than initiating lawsuits about fraud. Sundance last January, ideology trumped aesthetics yet again, as it is prone to every year in Park City, but never on the scale of what happened with Nate Parker's The Birth of a Nation, which in the end became a personal and professional disaster for Nate Parker, caused by a culture that increasingly prizes ideology over aesthetics. But The Birth of a Nation narrative proves that aesthetics ultimately do matter. In fact, when we are talking about movies, they are all that should matter. Nate Parker is excellent as Nat Turner in The Birth of a Nation, and this is proven by the amount of close-ups he gives himself as also the director of the film. This is the movie he wrote and directed and produced about the rebellion led by the slave preacher Nat Turner in 1831. And I've noticed the actor Nate Parker in many films, especially in Gina Prince-Bythewood's underrated Beyond the Lights, where it ultimately confirmed he was an unusually soulful, handsome, black leading man that could carry any number of films. The future for him was wide open. And he has a few scenes in The Birth of a Nation where he more than rises to the occasion and gives a stirring and powerful performance. There is also the rooting factor that Nate Parker spent years of his life trying to get this very difficult picture made, and the fact that he managed to get the $10 million needed to make this passion project after investing $100,000 of his own money on pre-production is inspiring, especially to anyone working in the wasteland that is DIY Hollywood in this moment. The actor Nate Parker is terrific, but his movie is a half-baked mess. It's not a disaster exactly, but aesthetically it needed to be so much more than it is to survive what ultimately happened to it. And though I'm no fan of 12 Years a Slave, I kept thinking while watching The Birth of a Nation that maybe if an artist like Steve McQueen had directed this, it certainly wouldn't have been as evasive and muddled and cliched at times. Twelve Years a Slave had an art-conscious S&M freakishness to it, 
And if McQueen had made a movie from Parker's script for Birth of a Nation, he certainly wouldn't have left out showing the two rapes central to Nat Turner's radicalization, even though these rapes have been argued to be fictional and are only there in the movie to pump up its revenge melodrama, or leaving out the murders of white children and their mothers at the hand of the rebellion, including the decapitation of a white infant. And I'm not sure McQueen would have eliminated the drunkenness among the slaves participating in the rebellion's massacres either. The birth of a nation doesn't have the aesthetic conviction it needs to sway us. And by the time this podcast airs, the movie will have disappeared from theaters, and its chances of being nominated for any Oscars is now nil. And yet, the forces that conspired in the disastrous public reception of the birth of a nation's U.S. release are not exactly aesthetic, but ideological. The aesthetic problem comes later. And let it also be said that The Birth of a Nation is a much more interesting and actually better movie than the inept studio-produced white-person non-thriller The Girl on the Train, which was supposedly the movie The Birth of a Nation was up against the weekend it opened. The Girl on the Train opened wide in 3,000 theaters and won the weekend with about $25 million. The Birth of a Nation also opened wide in over 2,000 theaters and underperformed with a gross of $7 million. So who is to blame for the movie's failure to connect with anyone, including reviewers, audiences, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, who were being pressured to award the film since its premiere in January, and when it was shown for the Academy in its massive theater on Wilshire Boulevard just two weeks ago for its official Academy screening, the theater was only a quarter full. And reviewers who raved about the film in January at Sundance have been deconstructing the reviews from January, reevaluating their initial responses, and trying to figure out what Kool-Aid they had been drinking in Park City. Well, blame Sundance and blame Fox Searchlight for buying into the ideology of the moment, exploiting it, and ignoring the glaring aesthetic deficiencies of the film, which would come back later to haunt it. But the film premiered in the January swirl of Oscars So White and Black Lives Matter protests and the onslaught of black men being shot by police officers throughout the U.S. on what seemed like a daily basis. And the film became more than the sum of its poorly executed parts. The warning signs were all there. The standing ovation before the film was shown, the winning of the Audience Award and the Grand Jury Prize, and the crowning touch, the $17 million deal from Fox Searchlight, the most ever paid for a movie at any festival ever. The moral haze surrounding the movie's reception aided in the overall showbiz psychosis and ultimately blinded everyone involved when they mindlessly vaulted the birth of a nation to automatic Best Picture Oscar status. And yet several people at the premiere told me last spring that the movie they saw wasn't any good. And what had happened was that everyone had simply gotten caught up in the moment of it all. It was a feeling. It was a feeling. And yes, feelings are not facts. Let's say it again. Feelings are not facts. And honestly, its competition was non-existent. So, okay, Sundance awarding both Grand Jury and Audience Awards was excessive, yet not unexpected and not that big of a deal. But that didn't excuse the fact that the movie itself was a bust. So what was Fox Searchlight buying for $18 million? The mood of the moment? An idea and not a film that would inspire and incite? A below-average Oscar bait movie that Oscar voters were being pressured to vote for or else? And the insanity of the Academy's overreaching during the Oscar So White meltdown? I say insanity because movies are supposed to be rewarded for their aesthetics. 
And what Academy President Cheryl Boone Isaac argued for and perpetrated was the opposite. If we have a more diverse membership, it will result in a more diverse list of nominees and films about diversity. This is a completely false and sentimental narrative. Diversity is a good thing. Forced diversity is not, and especially when it comes to art and artists. Art is not created by a democracy. Art is not created by the audience. About seven years ago, the Academy Awards desperately tried to up their Nielsen ratings by allowing 10 Best Picture nominations instead of the standard five, hoping that whatever would round out the Best 10 nominees would be blockbusters, so viewership for the Oscars would be up, which is how the Academy makes its money. This never happened. Instead of voting for Harry Potter or a Marvel movie, the top 10 opened the door to more distinctly mediocre middle-brow prestige movies that no one has seen, and yet the Academy barely approves of. It never happened for the blockbuster. It is rarely nominated in that new top 10, and it is not going to happen with diversity by tossing in more diverse voters into the Academy mix, because the criteria for whether a movie is good or not has nothing to do with the ideology of diversity within it and everything to do with the vision of an artist. It's just so condescending, and it's just pure dumb showbiz thinking. Hollywood is the problem, people, not the Academy. And that brings us to the notion of looking at the art and not the artist, a notion that a few smart people in this country do not believe in anymore, shockingly. Yes, comrade Snowflake, only good people should be allowed to create art. Yes, I'll notify the propaganda office, comrade Snowflake, and make sure everything is in place so only nice, good people with spotless records can make the movies now. We will only reward the diverse, the polite, and the clean. Good job, comrade Snowflake. We will only invest in good and flawless comrades now who adhere to our ideology. Just give me a fucking break. The problem is that nice, good people are not usually artists. Artists are usually messed up and flawed and selfish, and that's why they are artists. They are usually contradictions and enigmas and blindly passionate and obsessed like Laura Albert to create her hoax and insanely driven like Nate Parker to make his somewhat lackluster spectacle. And what goes out the window when you're obsessed as an artist is always judgment. And it depends, I guess, on how you feel about that. I don't care. I don't care about Nate Parker's 17-year-old rape accusation and his subsequent acquittal. That is between him and his accuser and the courts, and it was settled. And I don't even care, as a gay man, that Parker has said on the record that he would never play a gay character because he would consider it emasculating. Fine. That's his prerogative. I don't care. I kind of get it. Whatever. I still would cast Nate Parker in anything because I like his sheer talent. And yes, little snowflakes, I like his looks. I don't want to be friends with him, but I would work with him as an actor in a second because he can act. And I think he's really good looking. Yes, I am objectifying Nate Parker. And if this is triggering something in you, turn the fucking podcast off. Only nice people with very clean records and spotless Twitter accounts should be allowed to flourish and be accepted. Let's now vet everyone and make sure that something they did at 19 is still considered so horrible that we can't accept their attempts at art 17 years later. Which is exactly what happened to Nate Parker and the birth of a nation. The rape accusation and the acquittal came back into play, and hysterical feminists began boycotting the movie in various editorials, the most notable one published in the New York Times. What was Nate Parker supposed to do about a 17-year-old accusation that he was acquitted of when he was 19? Was he supposed to admit to it by saying he was sorry? When you point out to feminists that he was acquitted, you are confronted with the response that the judicial system is rigged against victims, it was most probably an unfair acquittal, and that every accusation must be believed. 
But until when? After the acquittal at what still must be believed? As someone who has been friends with men who were obviously falsely accused, I call utter bullshit on this. And this was the ideological trap that Nate Parker found himself in, and he refused to apologize. He stood his ground because he insisted he was innocent from a false accusation. But the movie was now unfairly tainted and doomed, and yet it could have survived if it had been better. If the movie was really good or a real Oscar contender, and if maybe a distributor had picked it up for maybe $7 million instead of $17 million, um, the Birth of a Nation team was demanding only offers over $12 million, maybe the expectations would have been more modest and Nate Parker wouldn't have been the latest sacrificial victim based on something that he was involved with 17 years ago. And there seems to be no evidence that anything like this has been connected with him since. So... Should only good people with a flawless past be accepted by you, comrade Snowflake? Should we only invest in the nicest people in the room? Is the freak and the taboo and the provocation getting drowned out in a miasma of politically correct victim ideology that attacks and wants to shut down free expression unless it follows a certain kind of progressive groupthink ideology? This is now, 17 years later, the real crime of this narrative. Don't see The Birth of a Nation because it's not a very good movie. That's fine. But don't boycott it because you feel victimized. Nobody can tell you There's only one song worth singing They may try and sell you Cause it hangs them up along with his brother Jay, was at the forefront of a movement in the wake of the collapse of the indie filmmaking scene that reconciled how one can create artistic content, control your material, make money, and survive. And they have been involved in the production of at least 25, 26, 27 movies in the last 11 years. They started out with a DIY effort that really began the game change, altering our notions of medium and indie efforts and the burgeoning reality of video on demand replacing the theatrical release with The Puffy Chair, which was released in 2006 and cost roughly $15,000 to produce, which was cheap even by Joe Swamberg's early standards, who started out with maxing credit cards and editing on his laptop. And it is one of those shocks in DIY culture, one of those defining moments that told an entire generation of frustrated filmmakers confronted with the dwindling resources of indie financing that there was an alternative, a possibility, but you had to take hold of the reins yourself. They followed the puffy chair, which Mark starred in as well as wrote and directed and produced with Brother Jay, with a series of character-driven dramedies that were more audience-friendly and less art-conscious than, say, the Joe Swanberg movies or the Andrew Bujowski mumblecore movies of that era. They extended the idea of making art out of the lo-fi DIY moment. The much more accomplished Baghead, a micro-budget horror comedy, and then they went into inexpensive big star studio filmmaking with Cyrus, starring Jonah Hill and John C. Riley, made for $7 million and distributed by Fox Searchlight. 
And then Jeff, who lives at home, starring Jason Siegel and Ed Helms, made for $7 million and distributed by Paramount Vantage. And we will talk about the differences the brothers experienced on the early no-budget films and the more expensive comedies. Mark and Jay Duplass have gone on to produce Lynn Shelton's Your Sister's Sister, which Mark also starred in and cost about one twenty-five k and grossed $3 million. Colin Trevorrow's Safety Not Guaranteed, which Mark starred in as well and was made for seven hundred and fifty k and grossed $5 million, and which helped get Trevorrow the Jurassic World directing gig. And they oversaw Craig Johnson's The Skeleton Twins, starring Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, made for $1 million and grossing $6 million, as well as one of their most accomplished productions, The One I Love, and the unnerving horror movie Creep, both starring Mark Duplass. And in 2015, they were most notably involved with Patrick Bryce's The Overnight, made for two hundred k and bought by distributor The Orchard for $4 million after premiering at Sundance. And Sean Baker's Tangerine, made on an iPhone for 100 k and grossing around a million. Now, if you have been listening carefully, there is a pattern here. They also have major deals with HBO and Netflix, and they seem to have adjusted themselves more comfortably than just about anyone in town with how the new world of content is created and consumed. Mark has starred in FX's comedy series, The League, for seven seasons, and he and his brother, along with Steve Zissis, created their most ambitious project, which dealt with bringing their lo-fi sensibility to HBO in the half-hour comedy drama series Togetherness, which I was a big fan of for both of the seasons it ran, season one being the most interesting four-hour indie movie you didn't see in 2015, and then following it up with season two, and then the show was canceled. If you haven't watched season one of Togetherness, don't be put off by the fact that it's set in Eagle Rock and revolves around charter schools and the fringes of the movie industry, because even though it seems to start off much lighter than where it ends up in the final episode of season one, there are an increasing number of emotionally complicated and effective moments. Mark Duplass is the good-natured Brett, a sound editor, and his wife is Michelle, a couple in the late 30s facing a middle-age crisis. That is both marital and professional, as well as creative. Brett's best friend is struggling actor Alex, played by Steve Zissis, who was falling in love with Michelle's sister, Tina, a kind of spectacular Amanda Peet, who I guess I always suspected had this in her. But Brett is really the most tortured character in season one, which charts his middle-age breakdown. And it was at times genuinely shocking to see the affable, handsome dude bro played by Duplass explode into these arias of rage and hopelessness that were volcanic. There's a doozy in a hotel room where after having the routine sex, Michelle starts making suggestions for improvement and Brett loses it. The show wasn't cinematic like Girls, the series that followed on Sunday nights on HBO, and it didn't go for the shock value of that show either. It's warmer, more humane, and optimistic, and yes, I can't believe I responded to it either, but I did. Mark has written and produced the new indie movie Blue Jay, which he also stars in with Sarah Paulson, fresh off her bravura turn playing Marsha Clark in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. On paper, Blue Jay is not my kind of movie either. A two-hander set during an afternoon and evening between two people, ex-lovers who haven't seen each other in 20 years, and who bump into each other accidentally in a supermarket and spend the rest of the day together sharing their middle-aged disappointments and compromises and reliving their youthful romance. It's in black and white and lasts 80 minutes, and it's semi-improvisatory, and I watched it on VOD. As someone who has argued for the grandness of the medium and the theatrical experience and favors genre, this is not my kind of movie. And yet my skepticism about Blue Jay evaporated almost immediately and soon gave way to tearing up more than a few times, charmed and touched and amused by both the romantic hopelessness of the situation as well as the marvelous and lived-in performances of Mark Duplass and Sarah Paulson were both completely beguiling. 
It turns out to be one of the better, funnier, and sadder indies I've seen in 2016. And even though it's limited to a few locations and at times seems more like a play than a movie, it moves so quickly and you're so caught up in the performances that by the time we get to the final reveal, the shock, the mystery that is the movie's engine, and that the movie keeps leading toward, because what was it that broke this couple up all those years ago when they were teenagers? I was suddenly blinking back tears and amazed by the range and commitment of Mark Duplass, and he has a breakdown scene here right near the end that makes any of the crack-ups he enacted on togetherness seem almost controlled and formulaic by comparison. It is fearless, unnerving, and truthful. It has no vanity to it. So, Mark, at the 2015 South by Southwest Festival, you gave the keynote address, and it caused a bit of a stir. It announced openly what so many people in the business knew but had never been stated so baldly. If you're at all like me and you read the trades and are involved in film conversations, it's mostly bad news. What we hear about is the death of the middle class of independent films. Where are those cool $5 million movies? That used to break out of Sundance in 1998. Why are they not buying those or making those? Or even when they do, why are they not promoting them? And why is nobody going to see them? Unquote. And then adding that no studio or group of executives is ever going to come and rescue this kind of film or filmmaker, that those years are over, you said the cavalry is not coming. Then adding the good news is who gives a fuck about the cavalry because now you are the cavalry. Some people thought those words were rousing and aspirational, and other people thought they were just really, really scary. And I say this because you were completely correct about all of this, but there was the terrifying economic reality that had hit indie filmmakers in the last couple of years. And yes, Patrick Bryce, who made The Overnight, is able to buy a house with his proceeds, but more often we have. And I'm just looking at friends and acquaintances who are now basically out of the movie business and simply into TV or um, real estate. Filmmakers like Sean Baker, who wrote and directed Tangerine, um, which you executive produced and whom you've known for over a decade. And yet Sean said on this podcast last summer that he found it strange that Tangerine had become a kind of cultural touchstone of sorts within the independent film world while he was completely broke and borrowing money from his parents to pay the rent. Now, that kind of economic reality of the indie world looks to be closing for filmmakers and writers just a bit because of all the digital platforms and especially Netflix, which we will get to later. But it is still a perilous way to make money, and it must be admitted that it was always hard in Hollywood to make money, and yet people were surviving up to a point, and that's not true today in terms of economic survival in the indie film world. The studio system became a long time ago not a conducive place for good movies, and it has been argued by many people I know that interesting mid-level indie movie world has tanked as well. And, of course, we have two months in November and December to see if the dismalness of film culture will either be confirmed or not with the release of high-end prestige pictures. And everyone is moving to TV and web series. I just finished um, writing and directing one myself. And, you know, yes, the gatekeepers are gone in a way, and you can make your own movies on your phone. But I guess the question is not about the future of content, per se, but more about the future of a great American art form, which is movies. And, you know, the screens are getting smaller and TV suggests in many ways the democratization of the art form. I mean, the writer is the main star on TV, unlike in film, where the director is the main creative component. And the way the camera in movies becomes its own character, creating a specific mood and atmosphere that TV is just not fully there yet. It is confined to its space in a way. In terms of being a movie maker, creating content for the theatrical experience, have we really entered into an era 
where there might never be another Spielberg or a Scorsese or a Paul Thomas Anderson or a Wes Anderson or the Coen brothers, let alone a Coppola or an Altman or a De Palma or a Polanski. I mean, have we come to the end of the cinematic experience as meaningful event? And if so, I don't know what that means. And is there something to be mourned about all of this? You know, I, I can tell you that my boyfriend who's much, much younger than me and his friends don't really get the hand wringing. Sean Baker on this podcast uh, said that Tangerine wasn't what he thought he was going to be making as a director, that he went to film school to make a kind of big, well, or middle range studio movie that are just not being made anymore. Uh, nor is even the big indie movie. And that by the time he got to that point in his career where it was likely that he was going to be allowed to make that kind of movie, it was just gone. And I guess the question is, should we be saddened that a great American art form is now, just as Paul Schrader said on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, they're just distractions now. The movies are just a distraction. I mean, the art of film is moving to TV, basically, and smaller screens. And it, but, but instead of visual ravishment, we have storytelling. And instead of the camera actively creating mood and atmosphere, we have what some would argue is an overemphasis on narrative and character. You know, that is changing slightly. But the question is kind of what happened to movies? And does anyone care? Movies are still being made and released more of them than ever, it seems. There are 30 of them opening in L.A. on Friday. And looking over the movies I've seen in 2016, either actually going to a theater or watching them on VOD in my bedroom or as screeners on my Mac in my office, and taking stock of the state of the art, there's really nothing to get excited about. And movie lovers pretty much have to wait for the end of the year in the hopes of seeing something that might be a legitimate part of the awards machine. But the young intelligentsia on social media just don't go to movies. And young people out of film school don't want to make movies. I just hired a 23-year-old assistant who graduated from USC film school. When I asked him, what kind of movies do you want to make? He looked at me and said, we don't want to make movies. What are you talking about? We just want to make content. And that's all fine. You know, sometimes when I'm sitting alone in a the theater watching an indie film, um, something like Andrea Arnold's road movie, American Honey, which is non-narrative and about 160 minutes long, I feel I'm often sitting in an empty gallery in a museum or uh, in one of the grand navy blue theaters of the Arclight, having paid $15 to watch an art installation. There's no answer in indie film either, in a way. The fun seems to be gone. And the fact that I've responded to Donald Glover's uh, brilliant TV series, Atlanta, more than I have to any American narrative movie I've seen in 2016 is the new truth. Now, there are also about four sections of Joe Swanberg's eight-part movie disguised as a series uh, on Netflix called Easy. That probably adds up if you eliminated the four segments that I didn't think has worked as well as the other four. Maybe the best indie movie I've seen this year in the section with Mark Maron is arguably, I think, the best thing Swanberg has ever done. So I get it. This is where we are. If you're not getting your kicks from movies, then Disc TV is the answer, I guess. So ultimately, Mark, where are we with the movie as large-scale American art form? Um, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I think to myself, as an independent filmmaker, I'm an endangered species, so I need to do what I can to take care of myself, right? And I've figured out an ecosystem that works for me, and a lot of that has to do with my skill set. A lot of that has to do with uh, what I like doing. And, you know, not to be reductive, but what that comes down to for me is making smaller budgeted movies like Blue Jay or like Your Sister's Sister or Creep or the one I love 
and and hanging lights with my friends and cooking with my friends and getting back down to that 15 to 20 person community where the process is as important as the product to me um and part of that is me being 39 and a approaching my midlife and starting to value my time more. Um, and, and I'm okay with that on a lot of days. Then there are other days I wake up and I think, if you just lead your life as a bottom feeder down here who makes $100,000 movies that sell for a million and I share those profits with my friends and we all make a living to fight another day, you might be uh, enabling the downfall of film to a certain degree <laughs> mm-hmm. um, by giving rousing speeches at South by Southwest for for how to work within the confines of our crumbling system, you know? Um, and, and I get a little down on myself and I think... You know, maybe you could do a, a, a little bit more to think about how to preserve this great art form to what you're talking about. But that feels impossible to me and beyond my skill set, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to control or exact any change on the nature of film viewership right now, on the nature of what's being made. My deep gut is telling me that we need to ride this cycle. Uh, that we are the dinosaurs about to become extinct Mm -hmm. in some way, and that in the mid-50s when Charlie Parker was just wigging out on his saxophone playing modal scales all over the place at a speed of light, and everybody was saying, where do we go from here? It's already maxed out. Uh, What's going to happen? Then Miles Davis came around, and he made Kind of Blue, Mm -hmm. and he reset the bar by just honking his horn like seven times on the whole record and he made quiet the new loud and i am hopeful that at a certain point audiences will realize where we're at and they will tire of what the current system is whether that is you know the sort of bifurcated nature of our system huge blockbuster movies in the theater tiny indies at home and that there will be a a natural um matriculation of audiences towards something new so i'm a chaser as opposed to a generator of change. Do you go to movies? Do you actually... I mean, I know it's hard with kids. Yeah, it's hard. hard But do you actually go to a theater to watch films? I have an eight-year-old. I have a four-year-old. I'm a workaholic. My life is my work, (laughs) my wife, and my kids. Mm -hmm. And then, like, once a year, I exercise. Um, (laughs) So I really don't do anything else. Mm -hmm. I don't go see live music anymore. I I don't go to the movies. I don't really socialize that much, to be honest with you. Um, Every now and then... I feel that it's very important to go see a movie and I want to support something in particular. Mm -hmm. I really liked that the lobster and Swiss army man Mm -hmm. brought in millions of dollars at the box office. And I told myself, it's really important that you get out there and support those movies. And then I didn't go out and do it. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't didn't see the one of those films? I didn't even get there. Well, no, I saw them. I saw them on VOD, Uh which is what we do, you know? Yes. Which is still giving, you know, something. It's something. I threw a little money in there. Look, I was sent a screener for Blue Jay, and I I believed in running it on, um, you know, how I did. Oh, you threw threw five bucks in the pot. It was $6.99, I think. Oh, nice. But do you you watch TV? Uh, I watch a lot of documentaries on Netflix, mm-hmm. and I watch a lot of the HBO documentaries. Um, that's sort of like a fun thing that my wife and I do. I always feel like if you're taking a bet on a movie and you're not sure it's going to be good, yes. watch a documentary. Because even if the filmmaking is subpar, there's going to be something in the subject matter that you learn from and can walk away with. So, Any recently that you've... Uh... Um, really, f- I'd say probably the... 
best thing I saw recently is a doc called Finders Keepers on Netflix. Um, it's a very fun story that has some emotional poignancy beneath the surface. It's about a, a man who uh, buys a slow cooker out of um, a sort of garage sale from a storage space. And when he opens it up, um, it has a mummified leg in it. And it was um, the man whose slow cooker it was. It was his leg when he lost it, and he forgot that he left it in there. And so these two go into a little bit of a war over the leg. But This it is becomes, a documentary. This is a documentary. Mm-hmm. It becomes a little bit about something else. So, um, you know, the, that that was really fun because it had that slight thing that had some meaning underneath mm-hmm. it. Normally I go towards things like Stevie or American Movie or these profiles right. of these very complicated personas <clears throat> that I just love spending hours and hours with. And I think that if my filmmaking is influenced by anything, it's mostly influenced by the documentary aesthetic of yes. trying to find an mm-hmm. environment where lightning might strike, trying to circle it, be near it, and and be there when the magic happens. If, if there's anything that's going to be able to keep me alive and vital as I've made like 30 movies. What's it all about now? What's it all about? And Blue Jay is part and parcel with that is trying to create an environment where something special might happen, which makes you inhabit the fear of, Oh fuck. What if this doesn't happen? And I like being in that spot when I'm making art. Well, Blue Jay, you had an idea based on what sounds like a looming midlife crisis, which is the realization as a man that your youth is really gone and is not coming back and the finish line is more clearly in the distance. And before even writing anything down, you called up the actress Sarah Paulson and asked if she would be interested in playing the female lead in this project worth thinking about. And six weeks later, you are shooting it. And it takes about seven days to shoot in, I think, we're Crestline, California. Crestline, yeah. And you're working off a two-page outline. And on set, you are coming up with dialogue, sometimes minutes before a scene, and giving the dialogue to Paulson. And this is how you shoot the movie. And I love this approach. This is really an example of what people should be doing in terms of, like, instead of complaining or waiting for financing, just go make the movie. I didn't know it was made like this until a week after I Mm. saw the movie. And you get sole screenplay credit, and I assumed it was just a very well-written script. And I was surprised to find out that it wasn't written in the traditional sense. And I was wondering, I want to hear how you came about shooting Blue Jay that way. But have you worked like that a lot? I mean, you couldn't do it on togetherness. You couldn't do it on TV, but in movies. Uh, I've I've done this uh, a lot, not as a director. Jay and I like having a traditional script as a director and then embarking from it. Um, As an actor and a producer and a writer, I do this quite a bit. Um, I did this with The One I Love. I did this with um, Your Sister's Sister. The One I Love? Really? That seems like such a complicated idea. Detailed outline, detailed story, but but no scripted dialogue. Um, And I guess what I like about it um, is, again, it's chasing something as opposed to trying to exact something i so am envious of and admire the coen brothers because i feel like when they birth a movie they're just watching the comic book of the movie in their head they have the whole thing and when they get on set they just march through it and make it happen i don't know how to do that Mm -hmm. i have to go and chase things and find them and use my instincts and spirit to, to catch them i have to make a lot of mistakes in the process and blue jay was the least prepared uh, I've ever been shooting a film. Uh, and it was done partly by design um, because uh, I really wanted to see how far I could push that quote-unquote unpreparedness and still come up with a product that worked. And my, my feeling about it was I was a musician for a long time, and I remember the feeling of 
my first studio record we ever we got a little record deal with a small label and we we had written all our songs and we rehearsed the shit out of them and we had five days in the studio to do it and we went in and we marched through a very pristine clean well-executed recording of the record and i like the record Mm -hmm. but it feels a little bit like an extremely decorated hamburger and the beef patty is only one sixteenth of a pound. We kind of forgot mm-hmm. the juicy meat right. in the middle there. And then there are these other recording sessions that I've heard through the years of, you know, guys like Mark Kozilek and and you know, Sun Kill Moon and what he does there, where they enter the studio with a feeling mm-hmm. and no songs, right. and they hope that they come up with something and while they're recording the song is being written right and it has these aberrations and this subconscious feeling of i'm capturing this while it's being birthed right. and i'm obsessed with that quality and again it likens to the documentary mm-hmm. thing that i just love so a lot of the things you see in blue jay for better or for worse um are the first time that we discover what makes them interesting to us. So they're maybe more verbose than they should be if I had written them. If I had written them, I would have been a little more succinct. Interesting, yes. You know, and yes. um, and maybe the camera's a little more rough-hewn because it wasn't quite in the right place. But uh, we call it disadvantageous. Um, and things that are accidentally disadvantageous to me are um, – they're just exciting, you know. When the climax of something happens poorly lit in the corner of the room with off-camera mm-hmm. audio, mm-hmm. that underselling of it—it just—it uh, just gets me going. So the idea of Blue Jay comes to you because of what? I think you said you had woken up uh, very frustrated by the idea that your youth is gone and the freedom of youth is gone and is replaced by the responsibility of adulthood in a way. Yeah, I think that you know. I have probably, in talking about Blue Jay, have gotten to a more reductive way of talking about it that explains it. I think, in truth, um, this is a feeling that I live with, and and it's not in my head. It's in my body, and it's in my spirit, and it's not something I talk about a lot Mm -hmm. because, quite frankly – I'm while I'm a melancholic person and a bit nostalgic, my life is really great. Mm-hmm. Like I'm in a very successful marriage and mm-hmm. my relationship with my kids is great. My career as an independent filmmaker could not be right. any better. Right. Right. I have full creative freedom and I make money and I own my home. Like mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. I'm doing it, you yeah. know? And and it's odd to me that um when I run into people from my past, I look away from them and I don't connect with them and Mm -hmm. i'm thinking to myself why am i not bragging about how awesome i am and showing them Mm -hmm. yet i have weird bits of shame or something when they look at me and they and i see that i'm not who i was and they see it and 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 i i can't figure that out just yet and i think it is connected to the bombastic uh romantic unbridled purity of how i was when i was 15 i was quite a bit like the character Jim was in, in the movie Blue Jay when I was young. And um, and I've sort of rubbed those edges out to not only to win in the world, but to be sustainable yes. and to keep my life on the rails and be a human being. Um, that person who I was is not built to succeed. <laughs> He's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But I miss him. And... Um, I don't know that I want to be him anymore, but I want pieces of him back. And so that's what I was chasing with Blue Jay. You know, you're just a very good actor, very natural and confident and loose and funny, but you're also able to sell 
the dramatic moments as well. I mean, you have a blistering scene in Noah Baumbach's Greenberg, and you're very effective in a small role in Zero Dark Thirty. And you also play a very scary, smiley face psycho in Creep. Mm. Did you ever study acting? I never studied it, um, but it really it was birthed out of Jay's and my sort of caveman-like approach to making mm-hmm. uh, movies, which is very arts and craftsy and very just, let's cobble it all together. So acting was never a singular craft for me. It was always combined with um, writing, because I was improvising and guiding the story as I was going. It was combined with directing while I was kind of in my head kind of co-directing the scenes a little bit. And so um, that's really the kind of acting I grew up on. I've since learned how to jump into other people's projects and perform for them, like in Zero Dark Thirty Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I really enjoy that. If I'm being honest with myself, you know, I feel like my value and what I'm most excited about doing is as a writer actor or a producer actor who has a hand in guiding the story while he's in the scene you know i i remember like watching this documentary on john cazale once and people would talk about him as like Mm -hmm. the guy who always made you look good in a scene Mm -hmm. and he would disappear and i thought that was the coolest thing in the world and like if there's anything i would want to leave behind i would want to be the guy it's like oh he's really good at making chemistry with you and lifting you up you know that's like a really um I don't know. That's kind of something I strive for. But how do you modulate the major breakdown scene you have near the end of Blue Jay after kind of the mystery is revealed? Mm -hmm. I mean, how many takes of that can you do? I am not a... um like studied actor who can say these are the three things I need to do to prepare for my big crying breakdown scene and then go exact it. I'm terrified going into those scenes that I'm not going to be emotionally available, that I'm not going to get there. Everybody is friendly on set and they never talk about it, but everybody's thinking the same thing. Camera's on. Let's see what you got. <laughs> do you have this? And so what it, what the way it works for me is, you know, uh, it comes and it lasts for a take or two and then it's over so I talked to my director Alex about that and admitted my fears to him and he designed a scenario where we just pointed all the cameras at me when it was time to go and got it and someone like Sarah who can do it a hundred times in a row um, makes up for what I kind of can't do and that's a, a perfect you know I have no problem with that i think in my 20s i would have been really nervous and insecure about that but i've just learned through years and years of making bad movies and now finding a way to make movies that connect um that the best thing i can do is be uh really honest about the stuff that i'm not good at and not be falsely modest about the stuff that i'm great at right and really come forward and say i know what to do here give me the ball i'll run with it but also come forward and say i'm i can't do this i need your help so you, do, you really don't want to direct movies that you have written and are going to be starring in. As I couldn't do it by myself. I, you know, I mean, Jay and I might do that again someday. Mm-hmm. He and I have really enjoyed not directing since uh, the opus of Togetherness. Right. Um, it's been really nice. You know, it's a, it's a much larger conversation, but our collaboration is one of the more complex things mm-hmm. um, in my life, and it's a lot like a marriage. And um, we have to be very smart about how much time we spend together in the professional environment to protect our brotherhood, to protect our friendship and coming out of togetherness. I think we both felt like let's, let's go run off and have affairs with some other people right now. And then we will come return to each other when we're ready. 
Blue Jay is the first movie in a four-picture deal that you and your brother have with Netflix. What did Blue Jay cost? So I actually honestly don't even know mm-hmm. the actual budget mm-hmm. of the movie. This is the first one where I had legitimate producers uh, handle all that stuff mm-hmm. for me. The way that those movies work essentially is that I have a long-standing relationship with Ted Sarandos, who runs Netflix. He bought the puffy chair for me way back when, and he said, "Oh, we're going to start putting these movies online. Maybe people will stream them." And 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 I just I love him, and he trusts mm-hmm. us, and. Our understanding is that Netflix is an enormous global company, have tons of money, um, and our deal with them is they kind of overpay us for these movies um, so that they don't have to bid and go crazy for them at Sundance. And and I'm really honest with Ted. I'm like, look, I'm going to make this movie. You don't get to see it before you have to pay for it. It might sell for X or it might sell for 10 times X. So just pay me 5X. For all the movies, and we all get to sleep a lot easier, yes. and it and it really works out great. And 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 I've found myself in a place where I get to make a small, quiet, black and white movie that, honestly, no one else is going to prepay for, and I get to do Correct. it with full creative control. Right. And you know, I'm still in that somewhat communistic place of. Jay and I make a good salary. We share a bunch of the overages with our crew who work with us, mm-hmm. and it's. It's a little bit – there's a little bit of defeatism in it, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest with you. A little bit of like if I try to go for the $10 million thing, right. I might have to wait five years and I might get murdered and I might like have to sacrifice the story. So I'm just going to stay here where I know it's safe and I get to do what I want to do. But again, I'm an independent filmmaker. Like I got enough struggles to deal with. Which is why Netflix is so appealing to people in town right now because basically I think initially people in, on social media, of course, people on social media were kind of outraged by some of the deals that they heard Netflix mm-hmm. were making with people, especially uh, the uh, screenwriter Max Landis got a lot of flack. Netflix was paying him for for those two scripts, that amount of money. Yes. What people don't understand that Netflix is buying it forever, more or less. 100%. There, there's no you're, you're they're buying out your back end in a way. That's right. In a business where there is very little or no back end, and you might, if there is even is any back end, you might never see it. So That's it right. is a kind of safety deal that a lot of people in town want to make. A lot of people want to be in, in yep. business with Netflix. And once Netflix, you know, I think they're um, when they, I mean, globally, I don't, I think they have about almost 90 million subscribers. They haven't, uh, they're not available in China yet. Who knows? I mean, it seems like a kind of a limitless yeah. business model. The two forays into studio movie making, you know, Cyrus and Jeff who lives at home, really, when I read about you guys, don't seem like especially happy experiences overall. And I guess not to, I mean, you might have been over this a, a thousand times, but was there something glaringly noticeable about the differences between what you do independently and what was expected of you from a studio. I mean, Blue Jay must have been a joy to make, a quick, fast-paced joy to make compared to what you might have had to put up with. Is is that true? It is true. You know, Blue Jay was not only a joy to make because I was with 15 or 20 of my close friends making movies the way that I used to make movies Mm -hmm. as a kid. Um, And uh, the studio experience that I had with Cyrus and Jeff Lewis at home was a struggle now, I'm one of the lucky ones in that I ultimately got to make the product I wanted to make. I just had to struggle a lot more to get that product made. And I learned a very unfortunate thing, and this is the big reason why I don't make studio movies like that anymore. Well, why I don't want to make them. I'm not going to presuppose that they want to make them with me because, quite frankly, there's a lot less money there. But 
I had to yell to get my way mm-hmm. in those movies, and I figured it out on accident where I've been to therapy. My brother and I really like to validate and accept people's opinions and hear them and, and have a healthy conversation, and we're big huggers. And I realized that when you do that in the studio world, nine times out of ten, they assume that you don't have a backbone and or vision. Uh, so they're ready to stomp you. And one time after a 12-hour shoot day on one of my movies, I was told to get into a van with the executives, and they told me they needed more throw pillows in the first scene, and they wanted us to reshoot it. And I lost my fucking shit, and I started yelling because I have a temper. And and then I saw on their faces that they backed down, and I got my way, and I was like, oh – Well, this is a terrible life lesson. I don't have vision unless I'm screaming. So if I continue to make movies like this, I will be burned out by the time Mm -hmm. I'm 45. And what I initially thought my Sundance movies were, which was just a stepping stone to get to Hollywood, was actually its own ecosystem that I wanted to be in. And then when I got back down to that level and started making The Overnight, which you make so cheaply and sell for so much, and we're walking away and I'm watching the salaries, the crew members are making five times more on the little movies than they make on the studio movies. And we're making great salaries. And I'm like, what? What are we doing here? Now, I get a lot less eyeballs. I get a lot mm-hmm. less promotional thing. But my movies end up on Netflix and millions of people see them there. And again, a little bit of that defeatism, but I'm kind of okay with it. 95% okay with it. Like, who's to say that uh, that's not a great way to watch my movies? I remember being in video stores when I was, I don't know, 15, 16 years old and finding all these old Bob Raffleson movies, these mm-hmm. these these sort of like lesser-known American New Wave filmmakers. And I was like, what is this? And I would go watch it. And and those weren't heavily promoted in the theaters, and they didn't kill, but they were around. They got made, and they were around. And I'm kind of playing the long game. Like, I'm going to... I'm going to walk away from this. I'm going to have made a hundred cool movies and 10 cool TV shows and people will discover them when they discover them later on. You and your brother have this reputation of having a really excellent work ethic. And you've also said before that part of why your work ethic is so good is that you really don't want to disappoint anybody. And yet there has been some criticism of this. Uh, Manola Dargis in the New York Times criticized you guys for displaying a quote-unquote almost aggressive lack of ambition. And I guess you meant creatively, not professionally, but what was she kind of talking about? Can you understand what that meant? I don't that, know. That was, did she – I try not to read that stuff because it hurts my feelings. I just I just don't seek it out. Okay. Um, but is – was she – do you know if she was talking about – the the product or the process. I think he was talking about it was. I think it was about Jeff who lives at home, mm-hmm. and, and like it, the, the protagonist and the story had that or that. Yeah, I think that, that there was. Well, no, uh, I think she meant creatively and not yeah. professionally. But if you look back, do you see that at all in terms of? No, I think like if anything, for my own life and my own rhythms and what I'm looking for, I'm trying to be a little less work crazy and a bit a little bit less ambitious. Um, Jay and I are very sparky people. We get lots of ideas and we get excited. And what's really fortunate is that I now am in a place where I can get those made very quickly. It's also unfortunate for my life balance because when I get an idea, I can call somebody and say, "Hey, let's go make this movie," and. I am my own enabler to a certain degree, and so I have to be careful now 
and literally set up rules for myself. Like I have a folder on my computer that is full of ideas that I'm not allowed to touch for a month. (laughs) And (laughs) I have to wait a month. And if I'm still excited about them, I can go back because I'm at the buffet right now and I've got an unlimited pass and I will eat myself to death if I am not careful. So ambition is uh, maybe not the right word, but appetite is enormous for us. Um, And if anything, I feel like I have to just be careful to not to eat too much. You're going to be care if any listeners have or have not seen togetherness i want to talk about it for a little bit and what i want to know is first of all i know these are kind of macro questions sure. but where did togetherness come from and what was the development process at hbo like i'm just curious yeah um it it definitely came from us thinking it's time to make a relationship movie about what it's like for us now and that was what the puffy chair was and it was relationships in our 20s and as we knew it and we were ready to get personal again um and when we started kicking around the idea it felt bigger than a, a movie just Creatively, so we thought, well, let's let's go to HBO. We've been friends with those guys for ten years. We have yet to find a show. They, quite honestly, were kind of begging us to come do something there, and we felt like, oh, if you do a t- TV show, it takes up your whole year. We won't be able to make as many movies. Blah blah blah. But this one felt right. It was also happening at the time of the death of the middle class of film, and us mm-hmm. not really wanting to make those kinds of movies. So we just said, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go for it. Um, development process was a dream. They were not only supportive of our vision and who we are, they, quite frankly, were creatively helpful because we're not that educated on long-form episodic storytelling. I hadn't done it before. Casey Bloys over there, who was our development executive, had been doing it for years. Yeah. And he schooled me more than once on a script I would send him and he would be like, and you're dropping this too early. You're going to have a hard time tying that up here. Keep that ball in the air. Keep that – all those things that like – I was literally like a film student. Yeah. For, um, so <clears throat> it was great. Uh, I looked forward to their notes, as crazy as that sounds. Mm-hmm. Made a pilot. Uh, they love the pilot. The whole time they're just saying, yes, just keep going. It's going to be great. They hired us to write scripts. We got to make the first season. They put billboards up. Mm-hmm. We went for it. We all hoped that it could be – a big numbers type of show. We had medium numbers, but our our sort of like live plus three or live plus seven ratings, which is how many people saw it in reruns, right. how many people T-voted, how many people watched it on HBO Go, were very big. So we had we said, oh, this is good. So our show is growing. We're very excited. I think something like three million viewers were watching each episode. We're all good to go. Um, then I think we didn't get any awards the first year, and everybody was like, Oh, something's up here. We didn't click as much as we thought we did. We live in Los Angeles. We visit New York, Chicago, Austin. All the people around there love the movie. Maybe we're not connecting everywhere. And that kind of knocked us off a little bit. But we all believed in the show, even HBO. And they said, don't listen to that stuff. Just keep going. Made the second season. 
got to make what we wanted to make creatively. They hired us to write the third season of the scripts. And then uh, HBO kind of imploded a little bit. Um, the right. head of the network ended up leaving. Right. And Vinyl was a big show they spent a lot of money on yes. and lost some money. And what happened there, and this is my limited understanding, mm-hmm. but this, uh, I feel confident enough to say that this is true, is that uh, Togetherness found itself right in the middle of we weren't that cheap cool fun show that could air on say a friday night like our show animals was right i got decent numbers but was cheap enough so great added value good and we weren't crushing it at the top like game of thrones we were in this weird middle class zone and quite frankly we were way overpaid everybody was way overpaid we were based on this old hbo model where everybody gets these huge salaries and i think that it was too expensive for what it was going to be and I think HBO had divorce coming down the pike and they knew they had another show with Sarah Jessica Parker in it right. that could maybe get there and we got caught up in that conversation and we just kind of took the bullet and it totally broke our hearts and it was a big wallop to the ego and then about three days later Jay and I started looking at each other and we were like each scared to say it and we were, but then we were kind of like are you relieved <laughs> and we were like yes <laughs> and it freed us up to do all these other things and i got to make blue jay because of that and and jay and i have been wanting to write a book together for a long time so we finally were able to do this book deal that we were wanting to do sort of writing about our collaboration and all of that and and I got to make a new show for HBO because of that, probably because they felt guilty about canceling togetherness. <laughs> um, and it ended up working out great. And now we kind of look at it now. We're like, okay. On one hand, we feel like we got like hosed a little bit. We were like really chasing something and people connected to it and it was bad business timing. But on the other hand, HBO let us make eight hours of yeah. – Whatever the hell we wanted to make, and they promoted it on billboards yeah. with millions of dollars. Yeah. Who the fuck do we think we are that yeah. we felt like we should have that for six seasons? Or what, you know, yeah. and and I'll be honest with you, like I don't know that I could have creatively sustained it that long. And I know I would not have been above the paycheck if I had gotten to season five. And I was like, do I have it? I don't mm. know if I have it creatively, but they're going to pay us. I would have done it, and I would have made a shitty season. Well, we had Andrew Haig on the podcast, who was one of the key creative components that helped produce and sometimes write and direct uh, looking for HBO. I am obsessed with him. Yeah, I am too. And which was, uh, you know, like Togetherness canceled after two seasons, mm-hmm. but the looking team ultimately made a movie that kind of wrapped everything up mm-hmm. that aired earlier this summer. But Haig was, was like you, both kind of surprised by the cancellation because he thought they were doing okay in terms of adding up all the numbers from all the platforms. I mean, often he said there were, uh, when you added it all up, there were often 2 million people watching Looking compared to the 300,000 that turned in on that night. Yep. And he was wondering, okay, that's pretty good. How much more do you want yeah. for a show like that? And also it kind of comes into play with something that you've said, which is um, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I think there's so much out there right now that the value of everything is going to come down. Viewership is going to come down and that the money going into the system is going to come down. Has this already happened in the year that you were, were talking about that? 100%. Isn't it shocking how fast it's happened? Yes, and, and, and someone's going to listen to this podcast in six months and we're going to be outdated on 30% <laughs> minimum of what we're talking about. But. But 
um, I kind of love it. I kind of love that chase. I feel very confident in my ability to be nimble because at the end of the day, I'm most comfortable making things small and with my friends. And that's my biggest asset is I can still go out with four people and make something that I feel is interesting for $10. Um, and I'm okay with that, you know? Now, it does affect how I engineer things a little bit, you know? Like, I'm not thinking about creating shows the size of togetherness anymore. I'm thinking about doing things again, like animals that can be done smaller. Mm-hmm. I have a new show called Room 104 that all takes place in one motel room. And you're doing that for HBO. Yeah, yeah. and it's different stories, different, diff- you know, different characters every night. And the way I do these things now, you know, this is probably a little more dorky business than, than people might care about, but... We're heading towards a place in this business where I think 10 years from now, there's going to be about three to four big companies, mm-hmm. um, maybe. And they're going to start looking to people who have sort of sub-brands to license their stuff from. Um, it's going to be you know, Netflix licensing catalogs from <clears throat> Joe Swanberg, from the Duplass Brothers. And my goal is to make as much stuff as I can on my own and to own that stuff and, and make right. it myself right. so that later on I can just say, hey, you know, here's my 30 movies and here's my 10 TV mm-hmm. shows or whatever that may be, and, and you take them and license them. So what I try to impart to people about the sunny side of our business is, yes, viewership is coming down. Yes, there are less dollars to make what you want to make because you are devalued because of that decreasing viewership. But the good news is you might be back into a corner now where no one wants to finance your thing. All you have to do is write something and build something that can be made with your own money cheaply. That might be $500 for you. It might be $500,000 for you, whatever your level is. And that ownership that you have, which you feel is forced upon you because no one wants to buy your stuff, is going to greatly benefit you 10, 20 years down the line. So I'm just leaning into that. Changing subjects. What does it feel like in 2016 to be a white, cisgender, privileged, heterosexual male who is a member of the patriarchy? Do you feel burdened by this? Um, I don't feel burdened by it. I feel like Jimmy Kimmel on the Emmys was uh, was was beautiful after Jill Soloway accepted her speech and said, you know, topple the patriarchy. And, and he came out with this nice, bland, slightly troubled look on his face and he said... I'm not sure this toppling of the patriarchy is good for me. <laughs> and I think the way he said that and the way he looked and felt is, is exactly how I feel. And I I hate to feel uh, like I am behind the curve on anything because I like to feel cool and smart. But I do feel like to a certain degree, like I made a lot of stuff with a lot of uh, like sort of middle class privileged people in it for a long time. And it was like partly predicated on my fear of failing as an artist so i wanted to make stuff that was close to home you know when you're when you struggle for so long as an artist and you and you make something good it's usually somewhat um just either self-reflexive or self-indulgent quite frankly and i did stay close to there but in the last few years i've sort of started to feel like okay not that i have a responsibility as a sort of white middle class cisgender male but as a dude in the independent film world i have power now mm-hmm. it's something i is very very real i can brand something and it gets made and it's crazy to me that sean baker needed us to make tangerine because he should not but he did and the fact that we could come on and say here's the money i made it on the league mm-hmm. <laughs> as my sweat money yes. take it um tell me what you need and then he went and made the movie and then uh when it was done uh i owned a large portion of the profits and sean owned a large portion of the profits and i said 
Um, you did all the work. All I did was give you money, protect you, advise on a cut, maybe help with the sale of it a little bit. And then I ran his Oscar campaign for him. And so for the 15 hours of man, <laughs> you know, 15 man hours I put in there to what he put in. So I gave him all the money that I made on the movie. Um, and that is, uh, what it means to me right now is if I can use this privilege, this position in whatever way I can to push a tangerine out there, that's super exciting. You were in a movie called Hump Day from 2009 that was written and directed and produced by Lynn Shelton. The premise is two heterosexual male friends decide to, um, well, due to a, a mutual dare situation, make a gay porn film that really is kind of an art object. And ultimately, in the end, they don't go through with it. They get to the motel, they talk about shooting it, and they almost try, but they just can't. And you cut to six years later, and so much has changed in a way. In the overnight, uh, the Jason Schwartzman and Adam Scott characters, both married to women, with Scott being resolutely straight and Schwartzman leaning towards bisexual, are offered a moment on this crazy free-for-all night. Uh, the two couples get together, and we in the audience are ultimately surprised at what goes down with the two men near the end, even though the movie has been steadily heading towards this moment. And it not only felt real in 2015, but it felt as if it hadn't gone there, the movie would have been kind of a massive cop-out in a way. I'm not saying movies should be defined by this kind of ideology, but just now in 2015, it's like, you can go there and the audience will accept it. Mm -hmm. And even though the scene is interrupted hilariously, it isn't a funny scene and it isn't played for laughs. I mean, it becomes this kind of moment mm -hmm. in the movie. And we understand why this is happening in the movie. It's been, it's been laid out. But do you think – and I, look, this is probably a question for Lynn Shelton, of course. But do you think that if you had made Hump Day today, you might have moved it closer to where the overnight goes? I mean, if the straight guys in Hump Day were going to make a gay porn now, they'd probably just make the gay porn. They'd probably just jackass it. You know, it's a really good point. I haven't thought about that. I mean, what I can say about the process of both of those two movies is that we promised ourselves that we would not – um, shoot for a specific ending with each of those scenes, the climax in the overnight and the climax in hump day, that we would just see where it went organically. So when I was improvising with Josh Leonard, we were prepared in that moment for it to go there should the moment move us. Um, and ultimately, or at least not to go there, but to fake going there. Um, but, um, but and ultimately, that's where we landed. I, th I haven't thought about it, but I think there is a very good chance that that hump day 2016 would have gone in a different direction. And it probably would have been a subconscious, just the zeitgeist of where we are and what is what two dudes would do in six years has shifted. I'm curious about your childhood and adolescence. Um, you grew up basically upper middle class and raised a good Catholic boy in a pretty sturdy household. Yep. You were a former athlete. Mm -hmm. um, you and your brother were also making movies as kids. What was it in your childhood that made you want to be making movies as kids? And I'm interested in what did you like growing up in order to you know, have you want to make movies or mimic something you've seen? Were there influences when you were making these movies? And what do you think it was about movies that appealed to you and your brother? I know that you, wanted, you were more interested in music, mm -hmm. but Jay was more interested in movies for a while. Uh, it's hard to diagnose that stuff, but I think that, you know, we certainly were a movie watching family. Um, it was part of how we connected. Uh, our parents were 
whatever you want to call it, good or bad about letting us watch movies uh, way earlier than we should, watching a lot of adult R-rated movies from a young age. Um, I think HBO had a huge part of it. Um, HBO came in. It was uncurated. You know, I've talked about this a lot, but Kramer versus Kramer, same time next year, Sophie's Choice. I'm watching all of this after school when I'm eight years old, and my spirit was such that it stuck to that and loved that. So the start of it for me was recognizing that there are these beautiful, romantic, emotive stories going on, and I want to be a part of these things. Some of that I could feel in music through the songs I listened to. Some of it I could feel through movies. What made me, and I thought about this a lot lately, what gave me the impetus to say, oh, maybe we could make movies, was ultimately a deep confidence that our parents instilled in us. Uh, The way we were raised was one simple message. You're amazing and you can do anything. And that is a very lovely thing. Um, It's a confidence builder. Um, It's also quite a crushing thing when you're in your 20s and you're not doing well because all you hear is you could have done anything uh, and you're not doing it. Um, and so you feel like a massive failure and um, that's hard. And this was happening to you. A hundred percent, you know? Um, but that initial impulse as a child, I think was, well, there's luck. There's that an that initial impulse as a child was there are lawyers and doctors and businessmen all around me. I could do all of that. That wouldn't be special. What's something that's nowhere. What's something crazy that I could do that would, that would just be uh, superlatively successful and movie making felt as far away as possible and, and music as well. You were recently inducted into the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. In what branch? I'm in the director branch. Director branch? What is your take on the whole um, Oscar so white brouhaha? Um, diversity is a good thing. Forced diversity is what? I thought some of the things that were going on with that were kind of misplaced. Um, the idea that maybe we have to edge the aged people out to a degree or mm-hmm. make sure they have, which is very hard to do for people of a certain age because they have to, you know, they're not getting work and they're not being hired to be directors or writers. They're usually teaching or, you know, yep. writing about stuff like that. And it will be interesting to see how that plays out. As I've said earlier, you know, the notion that you open up the five best picture nominees to 10 in the hopes that those other five will be Harry Potter movies or Marvel movies to up your ratings for the for the Oscar cast. It didn't ever happen. It didn't happen. They were still just kind of, uh, you know, more of the same, more of the same stuff. And it's interesting that Cheryl Boone Isaacs thinks that if you do bring in a more diverse crowd of voters, you're automatically going to get five very diverse movies about diversity. It's a very show-busy notion. It's not really logical. It doesn't make sense. Movies are, you know, for the most part, nominated because of their aesthetic, of a vision, and not because of an ideology. So this ideology is kind of swirling around in that. Does it matter, really? Did you think about this at all when this was happening? Yeah, I mean, I I thought about it. It seemed incredibly complex to me, and it was hard for me to find a way in. And and thinking about, you know, Cheryl Boone Isaac's job and what she had to do there is, I mean, I do not envy that position. That is impossible to get right. As a new member, you know, I – sort of took it upon myself to say, okay, how can I be useful or interesting at all in this organization? And I guess the way I felt was 
the same way I felt in high school when I was really into independent films and none of my high school friends were into indie films. I would use what I called gateway drug movies to get them into it. I would start with like my own private Idaho because I'd be like, hey, it's Keanu Reeves. Hey, you know, right. remember the guy from Bill and Ted's? Um, and my thought was, okay, so uh, if the Academy is a little older and a little white male, um, what are some movies that I can start to run some campaigns on and get people used to mm-hmm. so that, you know, just long range, we can start to open up the door to different kinds of movies. And the reason I felt good about doing that was not because the Oscars are the most important thing in the world and getting a diverse movie nominated Mm -hmm. is the most important thing in the world is that, no, every every minute I spend doing that is also a minute spent on good publicity for the movie. We never really thought we were going to get a Tangerine nomination. But we ran a really cool campaign. Mm -hmm. Yes, you did. I got screenings in front of people who would never have even heard of that movie. And so now, like, a little bit of track has been laid there. Um, So that's really my goal is just, like, I'm just going to try and open up these audiences to new movies. And I really feel like... We're about to potentially luck into something with the film Moonlight. Um, this is Barry Jenkins' right. new movie, right? And it's an important movie, and it's a great film. I haven't seen it. Yet. And and you know, it opens it opens yeah. this yeah, very this soon. Yeah. yeah, this fall. And um, and I think that there's something really exciting happening. And and I think that. I'm wa- I'm watching this swirling like a hurricane storm, and it's all swirling around the potential of what Moonlight could be, and I think it could be a great conversation starter for the Academy. The last question that I ask every guest on the podcast is, um, what do you think of the Eagles, the band? It's mm, a really great question. Um, I'm not a fan. When they come up on my Pandora playlist, I thumbs down them. <laughs> there are bands that circle them that I like better. I have pretended to like them in front of some of my ex-girlfriend's parents so that I could get in with them more and share a beer in a better way. Um, So I have lied about my feelings about the Eagles in the past. Um, The Hell Freezes Over tour, the art for it was really hard for me to stomach. It felt like a big money grab. And uh, the smiles felt very disingenuous. And that was like kind of grody to me. And that's, that's about it. That's my catalog of feelings. Adam? I have a question I want to ask you, Mark. What's the age difference between you and your brother? Uh, we were four years apart. Jay's older. Okay. So when you mentioned you know, being raised to believe you had potential and all this, and then you were frustrated in your 20s, it seems like a lot of creative people lose it there and go off the rails, and they just get consumed with anger, frustration, feel like things were owed to them, why didn't work out. It seems like if it's solitary, that could be what happens. But it's kind of unique. You had a a brother, do you think that that saved you? And what would it have 100%. been like if you were solo? Yeah, 100%. I don't think Jay or I either would have transcended our creative uh, struggles in our late teens and early 20s if we didn't have each other to lean on. We had a wonderful balance back then that we used to call the bull and the brakes. And I was the bull constantly charging towards some new bad idea. And Jay was pumping the brakes saying, oh, this is not going to work for this reason and this reason. And he was right most of the time. Um, But it allowed us to sort of uh, lean on each other and sustain each other. And um, I, I think, you know, we went to this prep school where everyone was successful by the time they were 22 Mm -hmm. and i was 25 and 20 and jay was 29 before we made our first movie that went to sundance and we were just watching all of our friends flourish and become extremely successful and i think it would have been too tempting for us to just 
bail out and and because we had great grades we could have gone into a law school or med school and done something and i think we probably would have bailed if we didn't have each other do you remember how you tempered like were you consumed with frustration and anger yeah we were extremely frustrated the way we tempered it is that we just banged our heads against the wall constantly trying to make stuff and we were always throwing each other off of cliffs say let's let's try this let's try this and we made tons and tons of bad art um and i recommend that to people the one mistake we made is that we went and made a feature film before we were ready um, that we ultimately buried and never showed anyone. And we lost a lot of money that we had made from our day jobs, and it really broke us creatively. So I try to recommend to people, like, try to make a lot of cheap mistakes early on because they don't hurt as bad. Um, and, um, and, yeah, we were, you know, we were constantly – let's watch this Coen Brothers movie and see what they're doing. What are they getting right and what are we not doing? I mean, we were we were hammering. That's about the most productive, that's very almost fortunate Like, because so many people we talk to, it, that leads them to substance abuse, yeah. a very self-destructive behavior. It seems like you guys, it was the opposite of self-destructive. It's, no, we were, we were like, you know, living like monks. We were literally living off of like, I think, you know, $7,000 a year and we would edit to make money um, on the side. I used to edit for a church television show at night uh, <laughs> to make money. Um, and we would, you know, we were aware we were we were anxious and we were depressive so we would we would run a lot to keep our moods up and make sure we didn't tank and we would try to sleep well and then we we just if i could take it back i would i would go to those guys and i would just put a hand on their shoulder and just say it's going to be okay even if you don't make it you're going to be okay we were so desperately driven and and we beat ourselves up really Badly, you know. I was going to say you just kind of touched on it, but day to day mood, you kept up with exercise and sleep, that kind of stuff. That's the, and I still do that stuff to this day. I mean, I'm, I'm, Jay and I are both religious about like, gotta, gotta sleep well. You know, as much as we are quote unquote workaholics that people talk about, I never sleep less than eight hours a night. I'm constantly eating well. I try to exercise three or four times a week so I can stabilize my mood and, and all that stuff because we we will certainly go down the dark hole if we don't. Did either of you guys ever go down the hole and the other one had to pull back? Yeah, there's uh, there's many holes. It's never been like a heroin hole for us, you know, um, but there's like a lot of stuff of just like I'm not really doing well this month and yeah. I'm kind of tanking a little bit and then we, you know, go on walks together and lean on each other. It's and- such a luxury. You know? It's really incredible. 